spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked with favour on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made our ancestors to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the Gospel of Christ. Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today in our Anglican Church calendar is the feast that is uh, titled Saint Mary, the Mother of Jesus. What to say about Mary? My observation um, after 25 years of ordained ministry in the Anglican Church, is that in general, and I am generalising Anglicans, understanding of Mary, the mother of Jesus, is somewhat confused. And there seems to be a couple of main sort of streams of response to Mary within the people that I've spoken to over the years. The first is that for many Anglicans, a large part of how they understand Mary is based on what they think they don't believe about Mary. Okay, you don't want to do that again, it's like one of those double negative things, right? A large part of Anglican response to Mary is based on what we don't believe, or we think we don't believe. And I say think we don't believe, um, because Mary is used by many Anglicans as a differentiator between us and the Roman Catholics. And part of how many articulate our denominational identity is defined sometimes by not having the Pope and not believing in Mary like the Roman Catholics do. And that's a very flawed position for you to base your understanding of Mary on because most of us have no real idea what the Roman Catholic Church does believe about Mary. And our observations about what we don't believe about Mary are mostly based on what we have seen Catholic people do in person or in the movies or in popular culture. And you'll see I'm wearing a stole today speaking about popular culture. This stole has the symbols on it and the icon on it of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So if you're in the Americas, Our Lady of the New World, um, it's pretty ubiquitous, it's everywhere. But um, that's popular culture. 
And I don't know about you, but I would be very concerned, mortified, if someone ever tried to work out what Anglicans believed by observing me as I, and how I choose to express my personal piety. I think that would be disastrous for them. <laughs> So the second major stream of Anglican engagement with Mary that I've experienced over my time in the church is that Anglicans acknowledge Mary's crucial role in the nativity story. Jesus has to have a mother. But once we've got through that obstetric event, right, Mary has done her job and that's all good. And it's not, because we have Jesus, right? Mary's done a job, we've got Jesus. And that's not, that's not wrong. But confining Mary to the birth narrative doesn't match what we see in the gospel narrative. And nor does it match in any way the importance that the early church placed upon Mary, the mother of Jesus. So let's look at those Gospels. In the Gospels, we see the Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the birth narrative. And it begins in Luke with the Annunciation, and then she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And then we have the whole Christmas thing, Luke and Matthew. And then in Matthew, Mary and Joseph and Jesus flee to Egypt uh, to escape Herod's um, persecution. Mary is present in Luke's Gospel when that gospel adds some detail about the childhood of Jesus. There's two visits to the temple in Jerusalem. you remember those stories. The first is where the baby Jesus is presented at the temple and is recognised by Simeon and the prophet Anna as the Messiah. And then they go back to Nazareth for a while where we are told Jesus grew strong and filled with wisdom and the favour of God was upon him. And then there's another visit to Jerusalem where... Um, he goes into the temple and his parents leave him behind. Right? And they come back to find him and Mary, the, the gospel, obviously written by a man, um, records Mary's response to Jesus. She says to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you with great anxiety. And any of you who have been in a department store and looked around and found that your toddler has decided to play hide-and-seek in the racks and you didn't know it, you'll understand that it is somewhat of an understatement. I think it's a very generous paraphrase to Mary what she said to her son. <laughs> and so then, further on in John's Gospel, we see the interaction of Jesus and Mary around the first miracle, the wedding at Cana. Then in Matthew, Mark and Luke we have an interaction between Jesus and his family and remember there's a time and it's after a great big flow of Jesus' public ministry it's really picking up momentum. There have been healings. There have been thousands of people visiting with Jesus and then there is this moment where a crowd is sitting around Jesus and they say to him, your mother and your brothers and your sister are outside asking for you and Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers, and he looks at those around him and says, you are my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Do you remember that story? We move on through the gospel narrative, 
And John records Jesus' presence at the crucifixion. Right. Not on top of our root screen, but on the root screen. I can't remember. It's usually there. It's a crucifix and there's John and there's Mary. And then, finally, in the book of Acts, we have, we're told that Mary is with the disciples in the upper room immediately after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So I think that time there's about 120 people in the church. That's before Pentecost, and Mary is there with them. So Mary is not confined to the birth narrative in the Gospel. She appears throughout and Mary's presence throughout the Gospel narrative is there to provide a counterpoint to the ever-increasing revelation that the Gospel reveals through its track as it begins to reveal the divinity of Jesus. As the miracles occur, as the crowds grow, as, as Jesus through word and deed begins to be revealed as the Holy One of God, sent by God, and finally revealed as Messiah. It's as that is unfurled within that gospel narrative, the counterpoint is the presence of his mother. And it's a signpost in the gospel narrative that as this Messiah, as the Messiah is the Messiah of God, is of God, somehow, miraculously, this Messiah of God. It's also outrageously and miraculously of us. And there is that moment where Jesus, and it's often labelled in scripture called the, his rejection at Nazareth, where remember he goes and he preaches in the synagogue and they just reject him. Where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Right? They're not denying that there was wisdom, they're not denying the miracles. Where did this man get this wisdom that deeds of power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this? Is not his mother called Mary? So that's Mary. That's one of the things that Mary does for us in Scripture. She's there. Counterpoint to the divinity, always. You know, and I'd always thought growing up as an Anglican that um, I was one of the, the camp that... Um, understood Mary by what I didn't think I believed about her. Um, I'd always thought that Mary is part of the medieval excesses that the church needed to reject at the Reformation. You know, like there was indulgences, there was Mary, so that all had to go so we could, you know, purify the church. But as you study it, as you study it, veneration of Mary in the church throughout history, it very quickly becomes clear to you, you don't have to read very much, that if this is an excess, this veneration of Mary, it's not a medieval excess. It's a patristic excess. Because the veneration of Mary is at the very, very foundation of the church, the Christian church. First 500 years of Christianity. The thing that the church always having hooey about is the nature of Jesus. How is Jesus human? 
How is Jesus divine? And where the church lands after all these hooey communal councils, where it lands is that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And in all this 500 years of consideration of the humanity of Jesus, it necessarily leads you to the consideration of Mary. And so when we get to the point in 451 of Chalcedon when they are ready as a church to make the definitive creedal statement about the nature of Jesus, these are the words that we still profess today. For our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. Fully human. For the 500 years, that's a long time, for 500 years the importance of the nature of Jesus was the central point that the church fought over. Because the nature of the Messiah defines the nature of the relationship that the believers in that Messiah can have with God. Your relationship, our relationship with God is founded on the nature of Jesus. And for Christians, that nature is fully human and fully divine. And so all the heresies that they battle over those first 500 years are all heresies that seek to emphasise one of these natures over the other. Some of them are too much God, not enough human. Some of them are too much human, not enough God. That's, the church fought that for 500 years. And Mary is the greatest, remains and is the greatest safeguard for us as, as we seek to safeguard the humanity of Jesus. Mary is the source of the fullness and the completeness of Jesus' humanity. And those of us from within Protestant Reformed traditions who for the last 500 years or so have limited the veneration of Mary to the consideration of her acquiescence to God's plan as part of the lead up to Christmas and her absolutely crucial role in Christmas. Um, we're the odd ones out in the history of the church. Right? 500 years is only since the Reformation has that prayerful consideration of the role of Mary being reduced in our part of the church, in the Reformed part of the church. And even within the spectrum of the Reformation, as our, in our Anglican tradition, as, as our church fathers worked out what it was to be Reformed, they recognised it was necessary to safeguard Mary's position as a um, bulwark against the diminishment of Christ's humanity. Because our 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is the prayer book that Anglican use, Anglicans use globally from 1662 to the late 1970s, so, you know, we've had that one more than any others. There were five, there were five feasts associated with Mary in that calendar. We had the conception of Mary, the nativity of Mary, the annunciation of Mary, the visitation and purification and presentation of Mary. So visitation and purification and presentation of Mary. Those were the five. Now, sure, most of those feast days will pass unnoticed in most parishes. But that's because of our discomfort in considering the role of Mary for the 
reasons I covered before. But the danger of us as Christians slipping uh, and slip, uh, danger of, of slipping into an understanding of who Jesus is that allows for the diminishing of his humanity is still as real a present danger as it was in the first 500 years of the church. Without the counterpoint of Mary in our understanding of who Jesus is, it is very easy for us to lapse into an understanding of the nature of Jesus and therefore the nature of our relationship with God that is very light on humanity. And that's a spectrum. It wasn't a specific here, but it was called docetism. It's from a Greek word that means to appear like. And at its most extreme, the docetics believed that Jesus was actually not human at all. Jesus was God. In the illusion of humanity. You know, if you think like in the Greek myth when Zeus would come down and look like and be like, you know, I mean, human, swan, whatever it was. That, that was that's the root of that. So the Docetic um, heresy was that Jesus wasn't really fully human. And that tendency to minimise the humanity of Christ is a really natural human tendency. We see it again and again, and we see it in the 21st century. Anytime we see um, Christian teaching that appears to minimise the value to God of the material world, of creation, anytime we see or feel in Christian teaching that somehow creation in the world and us and our embodiedness and our humanity is somehow um, less important than the spiritual by and by. You know, the earth has fallen and, and the answer is heaven. Whenever we find teaching that takes us that way in our personal thoughts or we hear it on the telly or, or whatever it is, we're in the docetism spiral. Hard separation between Secular and spiritual. Docetism. Right? It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't reflect your understanding of who Jesus is. Christians believe, we believe that God so loved the world that he became fully human and dwelt among us. And God, the creator within creation, therefore blesses the whole of creation with the fullness of the spiritual impact of God. And that's why we believe that Jesus came to redeem all of creation, not just individuals. It was all redeemed, it was all brought back through Jesus into perfect relationship with God. When Jesus' humanity is diminished in our understanding, you end up with a really gaudy kind of God. Again, it's not wrong, but it's not the fullness of our understanding. When the humanity of Jesus is diminished, God sits in heaven separated from our struggles and our pain. Because God is within him reminds us a more invisible God and wise light, inaccessible, hidden from our eyes. But that's not what Christianity teaches us the full nature of our God. Yes, God is immortal. Yes, God is in light, inaccessible, hidden from our eyes because we cannot upon the full glory of God and God's train does 
fill the robe, God's train of God's robe does fill the heavenly throne room with glory. And I am absolutely sure the cherubim and seraphim stand there day after day of all eternity, singing the sacred hymn, holy, holy, holy. That's God. Yes, it's God. Right? But we believe that God also so loved the world that for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became fully human. And it is in the fullness of that humanity through Mary, it is in the fullness of that humanity that as Christians we can have faith that God knows us. And we can in faith believe that the grace of God, the love of God, the healing forgiveness of God covers our own lives here on earth. That God gets it, that God understands what life is for us amongst all the imperfection and all the messiness that it is to live. That's why we need to safeguard within our understanding of who Jesus is and understanding that God is fully human and fully divine, therefore is equally at home amongst the seraphim and the cherubim in the throne room of heaven, as God is at home here, right now, with you, with us. And the church has always needed an anchor to hold its focus on that God, the God of here and now. The God who is fully human. And that anchor has always been found within the history of faith in the prayerful consideration of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among them. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus.